Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. This week on The Gray Area, Stephen Markley, author of the novel The Deluge, on why he was compelled to write an epic book about climate change. If 50 years from now we have used this period in history to turn the corner on the climate crisis, and you and I and everybody listening to this was a part of that, that is an incredible way to spend one's life. That's This Week on The Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? Good. Tempted to go fart in Evan's chair while he's gone. Uh, You've already done that a few times. I don't know why (laughs) you have to pretend like you haven't done that. Uh, Evan is gone, but we are are doing something for the first time on the show. We are uh, introing an episode that neither of us did the interview. Yeah. Sort of stumbled through that sentence a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah. It's innovative. (laughs) <laughs> it is. Yeah, we're really uh, doing this trip. Evan is not here, but Evan did do this interview, and it's with uh, Eric Larson. He's a very exciting person to have on the podcast, and uh, I have not listened to the interview yet. I haven't either. But I can tell you this. When Evan walked out of this interview, yeah. he gave me like a thumbs up. And Evan is actually only allotted three moments of joy per year, so <laughs> that means something. Yeah, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, Eric Larson's probably best known for uh, The Devil in the White City. He has a new book out. It's called Dead Wake. It's about the sinking of the uh, Lusitania. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, sorry, that, that ship goes down. Uh, that sounds excellent. I'm going to read that book. Do we have that book in the office here? I think we do, yeah. All right, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to take it straight from Evan's desk and not tell him. Uh, another book. You can take it from my desk because I've already read it. What's that? It's our sponsor this week. Uh, it's Love and Other Ways of Dying. It's a new collection of essays from Michael Paternitti. One of our uh, favorites around here. Listen to his long-form podcast. Yeah, his long-form podcast, also with Evan Ratliff, is fantastic. And uh, so is the work in this book. Mike's been writing for magazines for, you know, I don't know, 20 years. And uh, these are his best pieces. One of the best. Yeah, he really is. He is one of the best. He's also a completely unique writer. He does not sound like anybody else. Some of his, like, really early work, like that um, eating Jack Hooker's cow story, yeah. is, like, um, almost like... It's like the kind of thing that you would like someone would try to do in like a MFA workshop and it would go like horribly wrong, gone horribly right. Like a lot of his writing is there's he's really a, a very unique writer. Yeah, I think he's probably uh, That sounded insulting, but that's actually one of my favorite stories. It's like a dense atmospheric well, free think, form. Yeah, I think part of the reason that it reads that way to you is that uh, a lot of people are trying to write like Mike Paternitti. That is correct. That <laughs> but, is correct. Uh, only Mike Paternitti writes like Mike Paternitti and you should get this book. It's called Love and Other Ways of Dying and thanks to uh, Random House for sponsoring the show. One thing I would say is that just as Mike Paternitti writes like only Mike Paternitti, uh, you should write just like yourself. And what better way to develop your own writing style than starting a simple newsletter with Tiny Letter? 
you sign up. This is with Mailchimp, who who really knows uh, who really knows the email newsletter game like no one else. But they've simplified their whole thing into this. You get a little sign up form. People put in their email. You send them a newsletter. There's probably no better way to keep people up to date with your writing, what you're doing, than a tiny letter. Tons of writers use it. You don't have to be a writer, but I think it's really uniquely suited for writers. But even if you're not a writer, check it out today. They are our sponsor. They've been supportive to the show since the very beginning. Here is Evan with Eric Larson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You're Eric Larson. You're the author of, God, which one would you be most known for at this point? Uh, Probably still most known for Devil in the White City. Yeah, Devil in the White City. The Garden of Beasts is uh, catching up. I heard, I think I heard you talk about this interview uh, at some point, but I also also heard from someone uh, that you don't read reviews that you legitimately a lot of people say they don't read the reviews and they probably do right i don't read reviews Period. i don't read the reviews because and actually i don't even read the positive reviews because you know there's always one phrase there's always one phrase that will be rattling around in your head forever and you know when you sit down to write something um or to work on a new project the last thing you need is is this Phrase or, or God forbid, some really negative comment rotating around in your in your mind because you know you gotta you gotta be totally present and there for any project you do you know whether it's a novel or a work of nonfiction anything like that. There's one time that I broke that rule, and and I will never do it again. I was sitting in a hotel restaurant. You know, having breakfast. It was the, the ideal day. It was shaping up. Beautiful weather. This was for a, a book tour, and I was going to see my my eldest daughter uh, for the first time after sending her off to college. It was just really. Which shaping. book was this? It was Thunderstruck. And so, uh, so I was sitting there at the at the table, and I knew there was going to be a review in the Times on Monday, not the New York Times book review, but the, the uh, Daily Daily Times. And I, so I just thought, okay, I. Would look at it, you know, see what the headline said. It looked, well, that looks okay. I, nothing threatening there. Read the first paragraph. I just about choked. Yeah. This this particular reviewer did not like Thunderstruck, and it just ruined my day. I, I think I, I read that review because I was re- I was reading some of some of the reviews uh, yeah. recently. <laughs> and that particular reviewer um, uh, has has adored two of my books, hated that one. And that's, you know, that's, 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 that's her right. But uh, it was hard that day. So I I don't, I don't look at reviews. You know, people send me reviews. Um, People send me things that other people have, have written. um, And, um, you know, that's fine. I don't read them. They are so now on alert and my agent and everything else that, that even when all these sort of good things have been happening, they don't tell me. And so at one point I was talking to my publisher, I said, so, so you know, how are things going? I mean, is is that you know? I just got I just saw this thing on Twitter that said such and such, such and such, and she says, "We've been on that for days. We're just not telling you." Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's good. It's good. Well, you're pretty active on Twitter. I would I would imagine that you a lot of your fans follow you on Twitter. That you would you would not help but see you know people just tweeting out a headline of something that says like Eric Larson nails it again or well unfortunately unfortunately uh, well fortunately or fortunately um, I that is going to be one element of Twitter that I'm going to have to deal with because because yeah. I'm not going to not read my Twitter feed right you know? I mean I, I love Twitter this is this is like this is like great fun you know yeah so the other aspect I'm interested in maybe we can get it a little bit into the new book in this this idea of like you know the the last three books that you've had 
uh, particularly two of them, have been very successful in terms of bestsellers. I mean, Devil in the White City was like on the bestseller list every time I ever looked at the New York Times book section for like a many year period. So it feels like there's probably kind of a little bit of a publicity machine around a book launch and a tour and a, a lot of interviews. And so I'm thinking about this almost in a meta sense because I'm about to ask you a bunch of questions. You have to have like canned answers by a certain point where three months from now you're going to have said the same thing uh, about this book a hundred times. And it kind of reminds me of like, uh, like the Rolling Stones, like going out and playing like the same thing over and over again. Like, right. is that fun for you, or is that just like part of the work? Well, let's just say that I hope I can deliver as fresh answers as Mick Jagger can still deliver <laughs> as, at his concerts. I mean, that guy's amazing. Um, but you know, I, I mean, to some extent, I, I don't have canned answers. That is to say, that every time I answer a question, it's going to be it's going to be different. And it depends, of course, on, 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 on who's doing the interviews and so forth. But, yeah, there, there will always be certain stock questions that will be asked. And, you know, one standard question is, like, where, what made you do this book? I'm, I'm probably anticipating things that yeah, you're, yeah, you're going to yeah, ask yeah. me. But, yes, yeah, like, like, what made you do this book? Where do you get your ideas? Where do you get your ideas? And all that stuff. And I don't mind talking about that because yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it's kind of fascinating to me. And then, and, but now and then somebody will, uh, somebody will throw me a question that is like, yeah, really – Wow. Huh. I'm going to have to think about that one. I feel like I'm getting in early on this one. So they're not cliche questions if I'm the first person to no, be no, you're asking safe. you the you're question. Safe. But I was interested, just if you, if it's possible to give a capsule. I mean, all I know about the book is this point, because you've kept it pretty well under wraps in terms of what exactly it's about, is that it's about the Lusitania. Right. And what interests me about that is that anybody who paid attention in high school history reasonably well, like, knows the Lusitania. It feels like a story... Yeah, not quite the Titanic, maybe in its level of awareness, but people know something about it, which is maybe different than some of the previous books, which were you pulled people out of obscurity and brought them back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, the Lusitania is is not typically the kind of thing that I, I, I mean, I find myself kind of surprised that I, I took it on to mm. begin with, because it's not... It's not my kind of idea, per se. I mean, I, I like ideas that uh, are complicated. That is to say, something that, mainly because I, I like the idea of building in barriers to entry. That is, you know, I'll be working on this idea. Like, you know, when I was working on Devil in the White City, I could be pretty confident that nobody else was going to do the same book, mm. you know, because uh, to me, the worst thing is that it's the hell of the the dual review where, you know, two books are reviewed simultaneously huh. because invariably, you know, you start making comparisons and one's going to be better than the other or, or that's the, that's going to be the view of the, uh, you know, and then you're just going to be dogged by this other book for the rest of your life. Although you would never actually know about the review itself. You would only know that this book was following you around you would see the headline <laughs> you'd, see, you'd see like you know you like you know like in you know in the new york times two books you know yeah. you have the two books side by side right, you know, right, oh, yeah. but you're, you're quite right i would not i would not definitely not read those <laughs> reviews but um uh the thing about the lusitania is that uh i, I have this maritime thing you know i love i love Ships. Maybe it's my Scandinavian heritage. I don't know what it is, but I know it's always been rattling around in my head to to at least look into the Lusitania. But I never did anything about it. You know, a lot of things have been done on the Lusitania. It's yeah, one of those sure. things that might be described as like really low hanging fruit. And uh -huh. again, I I typically try try to avoid that kind of thing. But but in this case, um, you know, there I suddenly realized. Well, here's this 
here's this anniversary coming, you know, this 100-year anniversary. And now we're talking about five years ago, you know, thinking ahead to to May 2015. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, being a former former practicing journalist, it was like, well, okay, why write about something now? You know, why write about something now? And suddenly I had a reason, you know? The anniversary. Anniversary, yeah. yeah. Now, I don't like anniversaries typically as things to peg a book on because because they're, they're um, I don't think readers care, for one thing. But... Um, I did start. I started reading, and as it happens, the first book I read was uh, was very dramatic and very, uh, really, sort of quite shocking. I've subsequently realized it has also been completely discredited. <laughs> I don't want to identify the book, <laughs> but it was like scene by scene. You felt like, oh, someone sort of done this. I, I, no, it was no. It was more this sort of uh, these these really um, kind of outrageous revelations about what might or might not have been aboard the, the ah. ship. And completely and utterly debunked by by others subsequently, but it made a huge stink when it came out back in the back in the '60s. And uh, so, but I started reading about this, and I started thinking to myself, you know, it, what really drew me was 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 the footnotes of of that book, which were actually fairly skimpy. And then the next book I read, I came to realize that there was this really huge reservoir of archival materials available. That, that I came to feel had not been adequately taken advantage of. Huh. This is a very interesting combination of material available that would make this, for me, an exercise in, in suspense. You know, I mean, the thing about narrative nonfiction is you gotta keep it nonfiction. A lot of people don't get that, who try to write narrative nonfiction, unfortunately, but, but it's gotta be real, right? It's gotta be the real deal. Um, and to do that, you have to have the richest, deepest seam of material uh, available, and you have to go the distance and, and hunt through it for every little teeny tidbit. In this case, there was so much available across such a wide spectrum that it made me, I really sort of saw in my, in my mind's eye this, this kind of, this way to tell the story with a lot of suspense, a lot of almost Hitchcockian Suspense. I don't mm-hmm. want to. I don't want to wear that mantle because nobody can except Hitchcock. But um, it just seemed like an exercise, a potential exercise in 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 in, in true storytelling. And how far did you have to get into the archive before you said, like, how much is enough for you to say this is my next book? Well, I can tell you exactly when that was. Um, after reading some of the tertiary, you know, the outer, the outer, you know, beltway of of research materials, if you will. I invested in a trip down to uh, Stanford University to the Hoover Institution. I have uh, family down in the Bay Area anyway, so it was, you know, maybe this will be valuable, maybe not. Maybe it'll be a tax write-off, maybe not. <laughs> you know, so, so I went down there and uh, I was going through these materials and I was like, wow, this is great. And here they are, you know, all this stuff was actually really close at hand also just at you know, the time um, being being a full-time Seattleite at that point, um, uh, you know, so pop, skip, and a jump down to Stanford. And then the thing that cinched it, though, was I was sitting there at the table doing my research and an archivist at the institution comes over. I didn't ask about it. She just brought it. She brings over this plank about probably about not a plank, but a piece of wood about two feet long mm-hmm. with the Lusitania stamped in the wood. And this had been a, uh, a fragment from a lifeboat that had been dashed onto the beach and broken up. And this fragment was found next to a dead passenger and somehow made its way over time into the archive at the Hoover Institution. Mm-hmm. I'm not a really a, a terribly supernatural kind of guy. 
But I always look for signs that I'm on the right track, that, that you know, the, the, something is telling me that, that, that this is actually going to be worthwhile pursuing. And that was the sign. That was the sign. It's like, wow, this is interesting. And then this, this sudden weird connection, this, this piece of wood from the Lusitania right there. And then, so I started looking into, you know, looking into it more deeply, looking into other archives. Mm -hmm. And then when I realized that, that you know, I, I thought I knew something about the Lusitania, I realized, man, I didn't know anything. That's, that also really, really helped. I mean, see, the thing about the Lusitania is the Lusitania is, everybody came across it in high school, probably, uh, in a survey history of, of, you know, European history, yeah. probably on a timeline node, you know, it was one yeah, node right, on right. a timeline. U-boat sinks, Lusitania, or begins for America, uses, yeah, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. That also cuts to the idea of why it's been so overshadowed by the Titanic is because it seems to be more uh, like a geopolitical uh, artifact as opposed uh, okay. to this human saga of right. death on the sea. But when you read about what ha happened to the Lusitania, it's pretty grotesque and it's pretty amazing. Um, the things that went on and the things that were actually known ahead of time about the submarine and where it was going to be just, just, just really became a great, great journey for me. And even once you get into those archives, you're deep in them, you say, okay, there's a lot of material here. It strikes me that there's a possibility that the characters still might not emerge, or there might not be, I mean, the level of dialogue that you're producing from letters, from firsthand accounts, that it could be that that aspect is missing, or the most interesting people don't have that, and some more boring people have that. No, that's that's absolutely true, and and that that's always a that's always a danger. Like I, I frankly, I I, you know, I I immediately began honing in on on the captain of the, the mm -hmm. ship, uh, William Thomas Turner, uh, who proved to be something of a sphinx. You know, we went sort of a classic, classic old seaman kind of kind of taciturn and so forth, but enough on him to make him a, a, a you know a, a vivid vivid uh, a character, but. From there on, the choice was the choice of character was really determined by critical mass of information that that they left behind about the about the voyage. Because you know you're gonna you gotta find these people to hold hands with through the whole through the whole voyage and through the whole experience. So, a they have to they have to have survived because you're not gonna get an account from a dead guy, you know. Um, um, B there has to be a lot of information in that account. But C there has to be something fundamentally interesting about the character, something to make that character worthwhile. So, you know, that, that is very difficult. You don't know about that uh, often until you're well into the, to the research, until you've actually got a contract with the publisher, you know, and, and that's, always a risky, that's always a risky thing. But you can make an educated guess before you, you know, the book actually gets a contract. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week, Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Their software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the absolute wealthiest investors in the world, all for just a quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Here's how they do their thing. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. Uh, some other things you should know. Wealthfront manages over $2 billion in client assets, that's billion with a B, and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So here's what you should do. 
Go to Wealthfront.com slash longform. That's Wealthfront.com slash longform. And your first 10 grand will be managed for free. Some other things I should tell you, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there's possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. I should have read that very, very fast, but I didn't. That's okay. Uh, Thanks to Wealthfront for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Evan and Eric. You must have a very high tolerance for for like solo solo research, like digging in and like just being lost in materials for years, really. Yeah, I mean, I do have a I do have a high tolerance for 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 being alone uh, and 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 sitting in an archive hour after hour. As long as there's a good bar at the end of the day, that's this is one of the things that's required if you travel, you know, to an archive. You know, it's got to be a decent hotel with a good bar. But uh, no, I, I uh, it, to me, uh, it, it it is never. It is never boring because once I'm on the case, you know, really, well, it really is kind of like a detective story. It's like I'm in one, you know. Um, once I'm on the case, I just, you just, you just never know what you're going to find. And, but you know, you've got to find a certain category of information, you know, something that will make my imagination come alive, mm-hmm. you know, something that screams to me, this is good. And the only way to find that is to put in the hours. And uh, but I'm, I'm very content to do it. Like if I spend, in the case of the Devil in the White City, if I spend an entire day um, in an archive, and all I discover is that the doctor who was in charge of this innovative um, ambulance service at the fair is that his name was Gentles, G E N T L E S, Doctor Gentles. Here's this, you know, innovative ambulance service with rubber wheels so it wouldn't shake people and so forth. You know, that kind of thing. If I find little details, something like that, that will – or another another case in the case of uh, Double in the Wet City was, you know, the the, uh, the fact that on the first turn of the Ferris wheel, um, all the loose bolts that had just been sort of left on the structure in the course of construction rained down on hmm. the cab, that the first cab that people were in that was going to take them around this whole, whole wheel – Love that kind of detail, but you got to do. You got to go the distance to find it. A full day could produce nothing. I yeah. mean, you know, really. I mean, I have, I have, I have like for this last book, for my newest book, Dead Wake. I mean, I have all my all my records are are back in in Seattle, but I have I have volumes and volumes of stacks and so forth of, of original documents and intercepted telegrams and love letters from, you know, President Wilson's girlfriend. And, uh, uh, you know, I, it just – but what you're going to use of that is just a, a tiny frame, yeah, right. 10%, 5%, you know, because, you know, if you've got, if you've got 10,000 pieces of paper – and your book is, <laughs> your, your book is like, you know, 300 pages. Well, you do the math, you know, so, so. Right. You mentioned being a former journalist or, or lapsed journalist or, or. Former practicing journalist. Former practicing journalist. That's a great way to describe it. And I, I am interested in, in how, in this, the story of sort of you getting your start in that. And I read a little bit about it that, that you had, you went to journalism school. Went to work for a small paper. What was that called? Bucks. The Bucks County Courier Times. Bucks yeah, County in Levittown, Times. Pennsylvania. Just great place to start. Let me tell you, <laughs> Levittown was a little tough to be a single guy. You know, young single guy. But uh, <laughs> but 
but the paper was really good. And uh, from there to the Wall Street Journal? I got extremely lucky. Yeah, I got, uh, <laughs> I got passed over for a promotion at the, at the Bucks County Courier Times. And actually, it was a good thing I got passed over. They didn't see your talent at the no, Bucks County no, Times? Well, no. But actually, what they, well, I think what they saw was my lack of talent for a certain kind of reporting. I was writing features for the Sunday, so the Sunday paper, and, and uh, I really didn't know how good I had it because you know, I, these were, I was doing full-page features and plenty of time to do them. It was really fun, you know, really good. But I, you know, the, the culture of the paper was more sort of toward you know, hard news and so forth, and so yeah. this hard news spot had opened, and I thought, yeah, I, I want to do that. And happily, they, they passed me over and hired somebody from the outside for that job. But it so ticked me off, so ticked me off that I sent my resume to everybody I knew, and I knew somebody who had been working for the Wall Street Journal. She kindly passed it on to uh, to the bureau chief in uh, in Philadelphia back when there was a bureau of the Wall Street Journal there, and uh, I got hired. It was just the best, the biggest moment of my probably of my career was that that moment when uh, when he called me. I was shaving at the time. He called <laughs> me, and he said, "Well, looks like you're you're in." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my God." And was that a feature writing gig? They was, had those no, the, Wall, the Wall Street Journal at that point, yeah, the Wall Street Journal at that point was principally had a very different design. Had the classic, classic journal design, yeah. which I, which I, I, in retrospect, I think I, I actually, I, I actually prefer. But, but um, uh, you, you know, you everybody did feature stories mm -hmm. um, if they came up with something that Page One wanted. Uh, but you also were obligated to spend a certain period of time doing hard news, or what's called spot news at the time. And you had to, you did that at two-week intervals, two-week rotations, and that was pure hell, let me tell you. I mean, it was really stressful. Um, but then, you know, the, the, it, it bought you a certain amount of free time to work on to work on feature stories. And mm -hmm. I, I started kind of uh, specializing in the so-called A-head, which was the story that that in the old design ran down the middle of the front page. They're still A-heads, they're just sort of less less emphasized on, on, on the front page. And they're a lot shorter. I remember a couple of years ago, someone did a graph of post-Rupert Murdoch A-head length, really? and it had gone down to like, from they were like four and 5,000 words sometimes, or something, well, they were down to like yeah, a there thousand was, words. There was always whatever. a lot of pressure on A-heads to, to make them shorter than, huh. than you actually wanted, wanted to write them, but the, the classic A-head was essentially four double-spaced pages. Yeah. But, but back in back in the day, you could spend a month, a month working on that four-page piece, and that's why they were so good, because you just over-reported everything, and yeah. you found things that nobody else would ever find. So, and and uh, and so so uh, I, I just I just absolutely loved that. But yeah, so so I had I had died and gone to heaven when I went to the journal. That was just great. In fact, you know, I was working out of Philly, and uh, and uh, I loved Philadelphia. I really loved Philadelphia. The whole mob culture, and I was just Philadelphia is, is an original, really original town. But, but because back then the culture was that the paper, if you did well, they tried to transfer you. You know, so so uh, so uh, I, I I did well, and uh, they tried to transfer me to Detroit, which is you know business central, right? Mm -hmm. I turned it Car down. Industry. Yeah, I turned it down, which you were not supposed to do. I thought my career was dead at that point. Then they offered me another transfer to L.A., and uh, I turned that down, figuring my career's already dead. I don't want to go to L.A., <laughs> you know, so so there I am. And then they offered me a, another one in San Francisco, and I thought, hmm, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was great.
And so how did you transition into, I mean, I went back and read um, some Atlantic pieces uh, and Harper's piece, uh, Harper's pieces that you did uh, that turned into, it seemed like, your earliest books uh, or were excerpted from your earliest books, one or the other. How did you transition to that? Yeah, that's a good, that's really a good question. You know, what happened was um, after I'd been working at the journal for a while, I got, I was getting, I was getting kind of, kind of tired of, of, uh, of, of, of writing journalism. You know, I was tired of, um, uh, you know, just, I was tired of actually doing a, enough work to write a small book for each piece and have it last for a day, you know, mm-hmm. have it run in the paper and last for a day. You know what I mean? And, but also, uh, of course, there was romance in my life. Uh, I, I'd met uh, the woman who is, was then and who became and is still my wife, uh, you know, through a, it was a blind date, believe it or not. And, uh, and uh, she was a physician in training, and she got offered this fantastic job at Johns Hopkins in, in Baltimore. And so I thought, okay, devil's bargain time. I will quit the journal and work on other things. What I had in mind actually at the time was a novel. I have, I have, uh, I have four incomplete novels um, in, in various places in my office. In incomplete or complete, complete and unpublished? I'm sorry, complete, complete. And, but unpublished, yeah. Did I say incomplete? Four complete novels. Well, they, they, they ain't complete until they're published, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so so uh, uh, you know, four complete novels uh, in mind, all you know, sort of what I would like to consider literary detective uh, detective stories. But anyway, huh. so it's so it's so it's kind of a devil's bargain. And what I really didn't like was the fact that um, suddenly I had no I, I, what I refer to as cocktail party identity. You know, somebody comes up to you to party and says, "So, what do you do?" Well, yeah, for years I was able to say, "Hey, I worked for the Wall Street Journal." Uh-huh. Yeah, worked. Yeah, worked. <laughs> Um, and suddenly I was like, I don't know, <laughs> what am I doing? You know, what I'm, I'm failing at writing novels, you know, and uh, um, I, and so I started actually freelancing magazine pieces because I wanted to keep my name out. Uh-huh. You know, I wanted to keep keep in the world of journalism so that you know if, if I ever wanted to go back in, I I, I could. Um, I, I found much to my surprise, even coming from the Wall Street Journal, where. You know, back then, at least the uh, the features were about as close to magazine style writing as any any newspaper features could come. I found huge resistance from editors as to whether or not you know I could actually write magazine pieces. So yeah, you know, prove it. You know, prove yeah. it that you can write magazine pieces. So I started doing magazine pieces um, in in part out of complete contrarianness because uh, if you're telling me that you don't think I can do it I'm going to prove to you that I can you know I've always been contrary that's why I got the job at the journal you know that's when you know started writing magazine pieces and I found actually that I really I really got into writing those long magazine pieces I really enjoyed the the process I enjoyed the uh, the storytelling the structure you know, it's a whole lot different. You know, it's like thinking of thinking of writing a long piece is is, is like it, it's really you have to think in terms of chapters and scenes, unlike in unlike in even long newspaper pieces. Yeah, you, know, you got to think in terms of chapters and scenes, and I, I really I really enjoyed that. But then it also came came to to feel that while I'm working on these pieces, like, you know, I did a I did a piece for the uh, for the Atlantic Monthly about uh, uh, tracking the um, the travels of a particular model of handgun and what my goal was to sort of show what the forces were that put this gun in the hands of a kid in virginia beach virginia who then used the gun uh, to kill a to kill a teacher. This is like this is like the forerunner of things we've we see every yeah. I mean, I, every I, other day. I was reading last night, and uh, it was sort of breathtaking how 
modern. I mean, you could update some details in the type of gun and a few other things and publish it today, well, except it was 30,000 words. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, nothing had changed. Yeah. So, so the thing about that piece was, I, I mean, it was, it was, it, it was such a, a long piece. It was such a, I, I mean, I loved writing it, but in order to cover all the ground that I had to write, I mean, this was, this was a long piece when I sent it. In. I can't remember how many pages, it was like 50 pages or something. Mm -hmm. And I had been trying to cut it down, you know, cut, 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 cut. And I remember talking to my wife one night, I was just, I was just like, you know, despondent. I said, you know, you know, I just can't, uh, I can't get this. I can't get this thing down. Now, you know, the Atlantic had already bought the idea. They hadn't bought the piece yet. They hadn't read the piece yet. You know, they just approved my my query. Mm -hmm. So she's like, "Well, look, you know, you really don't have an option. Just send it. Just send it. Send it in." Next day, I get well. I said, "I always send things by FedEx because you need to get rid of that anxiety that they never got it." You know, you can always track FedEx. But believe me, that was one of the big big deals. This is like pre-emailing it. Yeah, it's pre-email, but still, even with email, you know, you want to make sure that somebody got it. Yeah. And, and that's, <laughs> you got it, you know, there's always going to be that little terror that, you know, even with email, that it wound up in somebody's inbox on a day when he or she got like 5,000 emails and never saw it. Huh. You know what I mean? So, so, uh, so I sent it by FedEx, gets there. So it wasn't real, couldn't have been within 24 hours, but within 48 hours, I get a call from the editor-in-chief. I can't remember, remember his name. I've ever been so grateful to him ever since. He called me up and he says, we love it. We're going to take the whole thing. He said, but it'd be nice if you could find some cuts. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God, this is great. <laughs> but then, but then as, you know, as I started doing magazine stuff, and realizing that there too, all the work that I was doing really was essentially about as much as I would do if I figured if I was doing a book. So um, prior to that gun story, I had um, I had done a series of pieces, um, uh, in, in, in part for Harper's and for others about essentially about how companies spied on individual consumers. A series of of essay essayish reports yeah it was another another one that struck me as very prescient of what's happening today it was like with junk mail and database right, tracking right, right. and that, that sort of that, stuff yeah that was a book called the naked consumers yeah. how companies how companies targeted individuals and 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 even in one case how they sort of manipulated uh, manipulated tv advertising and and also this one guy charming guy i love this guy who whose company would like put people in stores and have them follow consumers around you know without the consumers actually being aware to uh -huh. sort of identify everything they touched everything they did and so forth it's a fascinating thing so so um that was the first point where i realized wait a minute i'm doing all this stuff one day i had this epiphany and it was a strange moment because i was uh, yeah i had lived in baltimore had moved back to San Francisco when our lives really sort of started to fall apart. The high point of that year was the 1989 earthquake. Oh, that right. gives you an idea. That was yeah. the high point. And suddenly we had two, two small kids in a tiny house. It was just like, oh, I made $9,000 that year. So anyway, so from anyway, your freelancing, from, from everything, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, I was sitting there in my office in Baltimore. We had actually moved from, from, uh, from Baltimore to San Francisco and back to Baltimore, believe it or not, um, because it seemed like a safe haven, you know, apart from atrocious amounts of crime, safe haven for the family in terms of neighborhood and so forth. My wife, they sweetened an offer for her, made her a division chief. So we came back to Baltimore. I didn't want to be back. And one, one afternoon, I was sitting on the phone talking to my editor at a, at a magazine, really good editor, but he talked a lot. And so we were on the phone, and as I was talking to him, I fell asleep. 
fell asleep at my desk. It was you know hot, sultry day. I just fell asleep at my desk. I woke up probably like you know five, ten seconds later. Right, he was still talking. End of that conversation. I said, okay, this is it. This is it. This is. I'm done. I'm doing my book. I'm doing a book. And the, by the end of the day, I was working on my first book proposal, which became that book about consumer huh. espionage, the, huh. the naked consumer. Uh-huh. And then you know, I went through the exercise again with the gun book, realizing then, you know, this could really make a good book. The reception was so huge. And so that that that's what followed. Both of those books, as far as I could tell, looking back, were uh, well-received. Particularly the gun book was very well-received. Gun book was very well-received. The first book, well, nobody read, nobody bought. One guy reviewed. Oh, okay. you know, it was like, it was like they, they did nothing for that book. They did nothing for that book. And so you could have, it feels like at that point, gone down a journalistic path of... Uh, that a lot of people do, including a lot of people we've had on this show who, you know, they do magazine pieces, maybe they get a contract for a few, then they do a book, they kind of rotate them in and out. And I'm really interested in the point at which you sort of turn to history or, I mean, was there, was there an epiphany there, a moment there where you said, I actually don't want to interview live people anymore? Yeah, yeah, I much prefer dealing with the dead. Yeah, <laughs> did absolutely. you realize that or did you, you stumble they into don't it? You. Yeah, well, here's what happened. I mean, it, it, first of all, the, the, the first two books, The Naked Consumer and, um, and, the, and The Gun Book, Lethal Passage, were contemporary stories, contemporary yeah. issues. The first, there was not, a, well, there, there were elements of, of kind of narrative structure, uh, storytelling in, in the first book, but they were on a, on a chapter-by-chapter basis. This, the next one, Lethal Passage, there was a lot more sort of narrative drive, but still it wasn't classic you know, storytelling. It was, it was, is getting there. And then, I happened to read a book. It was a, a novel, uh, The Alienist by Caleb Carr. I read that book. I think book. it would have been 1994, I think. Love the book, but what I loved about that book was its evocation of old New York. Yeah. So I've always had a thing for New York. I left that book, having enjoyed, of course, the whole serial killer thing and the alienist concept. Um, but what I really liked was that feeling of that I really had kind of lived back in the in the eighteen whatever it was nineties I think of in New York. So I thought to myself, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to try to do a nonfiction book about a historical murder that would evoke the same kind of feeling in 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 me and and in readers, mm-hmm. only it would be all true. So I started looking into murders. I remember the book that I took out. I took out a book from the library called The Encyclopedia of Murder. Started reading it A, you know, and started working my way through. I came across the serial killer in Devon Lloyd City, Holmes. Um, I, whether it was H or M for Mudgett, his real name, I can't remember, but had no interest in doing him because he was too over the top. It's like crime porn. I don't want to yeah, do that he's, he's so uh, he's wanna, almost like hard to believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I want to do something more like more like uh, like something with like lots of character and manner, you know, less, uh, something like Gosford Park, that kind of thing, you know. And so, uh, so uh, I, I I found a murder that I actually started looking into. It just was it was bugging me though because it wasn't particularly mysterious. It was kind of funky. It would have made a great short piece for like American Heritage or something, but. Um, as I was doing the research for it, I happened to open a page in the the, uh, the New York World. The newspapers were sort of filed in a, in a way where you would come, you'd finish one, and then you'd get the next one, and you'd see the front page right there. So, uh-huh. And here was this front page saying, talking about a hurricane that had killed 
the headline said 2,000 people right in Texas. And I, I, I grew up on Long Island. I'm a, I was a hurricane junkie. There was, I mean, it was always sort of a love-hate thing because I lived in a, in a fairly innovative house that, with lots of glass glass walls surrounded by tall trees. You know, I love the trees, love the house, hurricanes, trees, glass walls, don't mix, you know. So I was always this love-hate thing, but I loved hurricanes. But I knew nothing about this, you know, hurricane that had killed like 2,000 people in 1900. Yeah. So I figured, ah, it's just the New York world exaggerating. Continued my reading the, the paper, got to the next paper, the estimate of 2,000 went up to 5,000, you know. And then for the next three weeks, it was just coverage in the paper of this tremendous storm that had destroyed the city of Galveston. And I thought to myself, whoa, I'm going to look into this. You know, I just hadn't committed yet to doing a book. But I started thinking about it, thinking, okay, how, how, can, I, how can I do this in a, in a really powerful and dramatic way? And that's where my agent, David Black, I credit him a lot with actually having sort of transformed my, my career. Because hmm. he forced me to come up with a way of telling that story that was in narrative form and, and that was, while true, was very compelling. And I went through, <laughs> I went through uh, proposal draft after draft after draft. And I was so ready to dump my agent, but I just gave it w one more shot. And I think he sensed that I was ready to, I was ready to bail because he said, okay, we're done. We're ready. You know, we're going to send it to the publisher. And immediately the thing got bought by several people wanted it and Crown, Crown Publishing got it. And, um, and I don't want to be trite, but like the rest was history. I mean, I just, I just, I just loved that approach to doing history, to finding all this great detail, finding characters, and and making them work together in this nonfiction narrative that 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 just drove toward this this horrible you know finish. Mm -hmm. The thing I wrestled with, one of the things I wrestled with most, this was the old journalist and me having an issue. The conniption was again this this idea of why write about it now? Right. This is a hurricane that had struck in like 1900. Why am I doing this now? What is what is at the Wall Street Journal? We were trained to think in terms of a significance graph. You know, the point being is like three three paragraphs down after the lead. You know, the the question you were supposed to ask yourself is is okay. Why should someone read this? That's what you had to convey in the third graph. You, Mr. Reader. Here's why you Here's should read this because right it's now. significant. Yeah, blah, blah 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 blah. There was nothing like that. I mean, except for the fact that there, you know, having said that, I said about anniversaries, that was also tied to an anniversary. Oh, really? Although we came we came out a full year early, deliberately because I wanted to to beat the any kind of oh, anyone anniversary else crush. Like, I see. So we came out a full year early yeah, on, on, on that. But it was that, it was that question, why now? And I had to wrestle with that and, find, and get to the point where I, I remain now. And the point was, here's why I'm telling the story, because it's a hell of a story. And that was enough. You know, I had to get to that point where you tell a story because it's a good story, not because it has to have significance. It has to be a story that is going to make somebody cry or sit up and say, wow, I didn't know this stuff, mm -hmm. or that is going to lodge itself in, in somebody's mind for 
you know, the rest of their lives periodically coming back to, you know, the burning of the corpses on the beach in Galveston, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you, I wanted to talk a little bit about the process around historical, uh, you know, research and then writing about it. We like at the Atavist, we we do historical pieces where like one of the few places that we don't uh, we don't peg things. So we've done some things from the 1800s. We've done some things in the early 20th century. And as an editor, it's it's challenging. Not I mean, I think the the question you I know you get asked all the time is sort of like or people reference all the time is sort of like, are you putting words in these people's mouths? And I know the answer to that question, which is like. It's written in the beginning of the book, which is like everything that someone says right, right. is from a letter or whatever. The places where I find that it gets more difficult are sort of like description. Like I was looking back at Devil in the White City and there's the, there's this really rich description of what something smelled like. He stepped onto the street and it smelled like this. Peaches at, in, the, in the train station? Yeah. It's in an article. What is the level of sort of like... Uh, it smells like that in that train station right. versus it smells like that in that train station that day. Right, right, right. Yeah, that that is that's actually that's actually a fairly fairly tricky tricky thing, and I wrestled with that. But my feeling was, you know, in the case of the train station with 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 Holmes arriving, and I, I think that was the context of, of that particular thing. And I, and and frankly, I'm I'm somewhat at a loss as to exactly what the resource was where I found the the smell of. of peaches. Um, but it was the kind of thing where, where the sense I got from the piece was that the, the, the ambient sense of peaches was, was pretty much an ambient sense of peaches, you know, yeah. you know for, for, that, for that season. And so, you know, it sounded to me like that would be a nice thing to, to have in the piece to, to sort of awaken people's all their senses to what was happening at that particular moment. Yeah. Here's an odor. Scent is one of the most powerful things I think you can ever have in a piece, but it's very hard to come by unless you have somebody talking about it or otherwise. Another example of, of this kind of thing was like in, um, in Isaac Storm, where <clears throat> using the, fire, the Sanborn fire insurance maps, I don't know if you're familiar with those, but every town uh, back around the turn of the century, um, uh, the company called the Sanborn Insurance Company had done these incredibly detailed maps of every community. I'm talking maps the size of a tabletop, about this thick, with every block, not only every block, every house on the block. Um, and because it was for fire departments, uh, every house um, was identified by the composition of the house, where the stove was, whether it had a fireplace, whether it had an outhouse, and so on. And, and, and every commercial building and its use was identified as well. So in the case of Isaac Klein, I knew that on a particular day he was coming, and I knew the direction of the wind and so forth. I knew he was coming in. I knew he was coming in from the beach into town, and he was going past the coffee roastery and the wood planing mill. You know, and so, so I feel you can make certain observations about what the scent is in the air at a particular time because mm -hmm. of the presence of those of those two things. Mm -hmm. Now, I have since I have since sort of refined refined that to the point where, unless I know it's actually happening at a certain point, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to make a reference to it. My standards have actually gotten radically tighter over time. Partly the books are getting so much attention that, like, you have to be able to go out into the world and make the argument. Like, because people are going to say that. People are going to say, like, sure. come on. You don't know that that happened. And you can say, yep, I've got it. But, but you can also, I mean, there are certain things that you can, of course, observe. I mean, for example, if you're, if you're, uh, um, I don't even know if I mentioned this in Dead Wake, the Lusitania book, but, you know, if you are, um, 
If you're in the in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a ship, and I know this because I've done now two transatlantic voyages. The first was totally for the research. The second was, the second was after the book was done, but also to sort of sort of collect some photographs and things to like tweet and so forth. <laughs> yeah, you know, but, um, the, the voyage taught me something that I had I had never really understood, and that is when you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there is no odor of the sea. You don't smell the sea because hmm. there's nothing to smell. You know, it's when you get closer to land. You know, when you're close to the Irish coast, when you start, you know, smelling the sea, where where you know the barrier between the sea and the land, where you get the the sense of decay and you know, um, you know, kelp and rotting on the beach, and you know, the smell of the of, of the spring grass coming off the Irish coast. So, you, but you, you you can you can make that observation almost at any point before you get close to Ireland. Uh-huh. You know? So, right. sure. So, you're, I think you're I think you're absolutely on on, on fair ground. The thing that I often find um, fascinating is that people will come to me and say, "Oh, but you have dialogue. You must have made that up, right?" Nobody reads the thing I put in the front of the book. I don't even know why I bother, you know, but it's there, right? About about the fact that everything between quotes is, you know, from a letter or, or, right, or right. whatever. But it's in a way, it's it's a very reassuring sort of thing. And I'll tell you why, because you know what's happening is the reader is taking what I provide him or her, which is most likely not going to be contiguous dialogue, but more like a couple of quotes in the space of three or four paragraphs. Yeah. But it's the reader's imagination that is making that into something that it's not. Is making that into dialogue. It's to feel it's like full dialogue. Seem, it's coming to seem to that reader like dialogue, and and I love that. You know, that's great. Yeah. But, if you, but if you were to say, okay, now take a closer look at that and tell me, and then read my footnotes and see, do you still think that that's? Do you think still think that that's dialogue? Well, obviously, it's not. You have to have your own standards for it. Like no one's really going to police the smells, and I guess someone could go look up all the research, but they uh, have to work. Yes, as, they will. They will, and they do. <laughs> but then and they do. It's like almost an existential question in some ways. Like you could drive yourself crazy saying, like, okay, uh, did he smell that on that day, or or did this happen on this day? You're trying, but you're also trying to create a mood, so you you need those details. But you can't if at any point you say to yourself, who cares if he did or didn't. Uh, on that day, then it all falls apart because the whole foundation of it is so, then you're sort of lost in like, well, why am I not just making up a bunch of it? Sure, sure. It just seems like a very... But it also depends very, very much on actually how you say it. Yeah. If you're saying that, you know, in the course of a transatlantic voyage, you know, you never you never smell the, the ocean and it's in that sort of context among five other observations about the ship and so forth, you know, that, that, that's fine. What you can't do is have a character say, uh, say, uh, you know, like character, character, you know, John. You can't have John saying um, he realized that there was no no odor of the sea mm-hmm. because that's that's a completely different thing. That's fiction. You right. Know, you're, right, you're right. Imputing thoughts and so forth. I often hear that a lot from people also saying, well, you, you, you know, you must be making up this because, you know, you're telling about how somebody, somebody felt or you're talking about somebody being angry and so forth. No, I mean, I will only do that. I will only impute. Uh, first of all, I, I almost never do, but I will only do so if I know that somebody's annoyed or what somebody is feeling. Like, They've recorded that. I mean, they have they have they have recorded that in a diary or or a letter or you don't have to read very deeply into Wilson's love letters to his girlfriend you know for this last book uh-huh. to, to get a sense of you know 
passion and the fact that this guy is like totally besotted. It's there on the page. But by the same token, you don't even have to say anything at all about how he was feeling because it's it's there in the in the in the writing. So you just present the girlfriend letters to the girlfriend. Yeah. You know? yeah right. And then the reader comes to realize, oh yeah, so he was feeling XYZ. And in terms of these characters, I mean, you did three books in a row. Again, I don't know about the the new one, but um, that had, in some sense, a double thread to them. And one of them that was sort of one story was, I mean, you have a father and a daughter, uh, and then there's also sort of like all the Nazis. Did you sort of settle on that as as an idea for how to tell a story and then put it together? Or did that come out of the research? There's a presumption that this is my shtick. It's the dual narrative, and this is what I, I set out to do all the time. You know? Especially two, two of them kind of had a very... Two like of them, and, and, and unfortunately, they were back-to-back. -back. One yeah. was, one was uh, the first was The Devil in the White City, and that was a completely organic evolution of the, of the plot. Because I realized very quickly that, that you know, the, the, the thing that I felt originally about Holmes, about crime, porn, and so forth, I still felt. I didn't want to... I didn't want to write a book just about about homes and and porn. I mean, what you then have simply is a period Silence of the Lambs. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it just was uninteresting to me. And but it was when I, during the course of the research, when I started reading about the World's Fair, that's when I thought to myself, I love this. The first fact, in fact, that really, really won me to the World's Fair was the fact that. Juicy Fruit Gum was introduced to consumers at the World's Fair of 1893. Uh -huh. And I'm a, I love Juicy Fruit Gum, always have. <laughs> and I thought to myself, no, shit, you know, a hundred years? I mean, I mean, this, this thing has been around for, for that long? And then the more I read and the more I saw, you know, who had turned up at the fair, that just about everybody who was anybody. Yeah. You know? And I realized then, within 24 hours of reading about the, uh, the, the fair, the title Devil in the White City came to me and stayed throughout the whole thing. What I realized then and there, that afternoon, the thing that was going to make this interesting was the juxtaposition of sort of light and dark, you know, good and evil. This monument to civic goodwill versus, you know, juxtaposed against this monument to the dark side of, of human nature. At the same time, virtually the same place. We're talking blocks away. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, yeah, this is this is what's going to make it compelling. Like that's the tension yeah, and that's that going to drive but, it. But it was really hard to, uh, to pull off. And frankly, on the eve of publication, I was pretty convinced that my career was over because I'd violated... In my view, every single you know concept of, of of good narrative, and you know the two stories never touch, you know they never really intersect, mm -hmm. except for the existence of the fair. And then there's one place where they, they actually do cross, but but otherwise it was these two stories, and it was I thought I was just going to get savaged, you know, by by everybody, but happily I, I, I was. It, it I didn't was actually wrong. turn out that way. No. no. But then did you fear the kind of shtick label? Uh, when the second book came along, yes. And yeah. here's, here's how the second book came out. I, in fact, I almost didn't do the second book because I was afraid that the the whole shtick thing would be leveled against me. This the idea, oh, he's, he's doing this derivative story, you know, and all that stuff. Derivative of himself, no less. But um, the way that you know, I'm talking about Thunderstruck, which is about Marconi and, and the second most famous murderer in English history, Crippen, um, Holly Harvey Crippen, um, was, <laughs> was that 
the way I discovered the idea was when I read in a timeline about wireless and Marconi, I came across a reference to this killer, Crippen, who I had known about for a long time. From your encyclopedia of murder? No, no, no. I'm sure he was in there, but but my guess, the nearest I can put put things together in my forensically about when I first heard of of Crippen uh, was when I was 13. My mother was a big mystery lover, huh. and I remember my sisters say, "Oh, you're full of shit." But my, I remember, I remember standing in my kitchen in Freeport, Long Island. As my mother told me the story of Crippen, and as near as I can guess, I'm thinking it must have been on the on the day when the death of the sea captain involved was announced in the in the, was his obit was uh -huh. run in the in the Times, um, because you know why else would she have told me about this whole thing then? So fast forward, here I am in Seattle. I had started reading about um, uh, Marconi and wireless because I had gotten cut off on a very precarious drawbridge in Seattle by somebody who was on a cell phone. And I was so pissed. And then I looked up and I, I happened to see a cell phone tower and I thought, hey, wireless. You know, this is, now we got all these cell phones, this might be an interesting thing to explore. In that timeline, came across that, the, the name Crippen, and I had no idea how, how the hell does this guy end up on a, on a timeline involving Marconi and wireless. So I started looking into it. That's when I learned about this transatlantic chase yeah. with Crippen, Crippen fleeing England and thinking he's home free, followed by Scotland Yard <laughs> with the whole world being essentially aware of everything that's going on on the ship, on the, on the, on the killer's ship because of wireless. But the killer has no clue. You know, I just loved this idea. And I was like, oh, man, here we go again. The, you know, dual narrative central. And that's that's why I did that book that way, because uh -huh. I loved that final, the final 100 pages of that book are probably the best, the best 100 pages that I've, I've ever written. Oh, wow. So and does the new one have a dual narrative? Well, then, but then you see, it, you, it's it's like if you believe in ghosts, you can you can find them evidence of them everywhere. You know, it's like okay, so the first two definitely dual narratives. Isaac Storm, you could even argue, was a dual narrative. You know, you got the weatherman, you got the storm, and you got this conflict, right? Right. I, I don't see it that way. I see it just as that's the story. And so, so after after uh, after Thunderstruck, which is clearly a, clearly a dual narrative, you know, then came uh, then came in the uh, in the Garden of Beasts. Right in the Garden of yeah. Bees, and uh, is that a dual narrative? Well, <laughs> it's got the Nazis, it's got the ambassador, it's got the daughter. You could say it's a, a dual narrative, but it's not. It's it's like any novel. It's it's, it's nonfiction, but it's like you read any novel, you're going to have multiple characters. Right. It's got a know. plot. It's got characters. It's got a plot. You got multiple characters. You got conflict. Are those dual narratives? No. So is 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 in the Garden of Beasts, uh, you know, a, a dual narrative? No. Is the Lusitania, you know, I'm gonna. People are gonna see it again because you got the Lusitania, you got the submarine, and they're in juxtaposition in a very, I think, very, very compelling way. Right. Because you know, in in, in this case, I got. I, honestly, I died and went to heaven with all this, this material to choose from for for dead wake. Because you know, here you got the submarine commander, and I've I've got his war log. You know, this 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 day by day, hour by hour account of his entire voyage from Germany. Mm -hmm. So we, so you can build suspense with that. Yeah. Converging, on this you know giant ship of Lusitania. So is that a dual narrative? No. 
it's a story. Yeah, following chronology from different people's perspectives. Do you feel pressure in the in the sort of success realm? I mean, obviously you want to write the best book you can write, and you have your own standards for that. They're obviously going to print a bunch of copies because you pass them sold a bunch of copies. And does that affect you? Does that impact you as you're writing writing the book or? In some ways, it's easier to work in obscurity, I guess is what I'm saying. is like it's easier to just focus on the work yeah. if there's not a sort of uh, industrial machine that is also expecting your work to like show up and like make them money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, uh, obviously. Um, but again, it's, it's like, you know, once I embark on a project, um, I just really, really try very hard to... to put it out of my head what anybody's expectations or, or hopes are and just hope for the best you know like like I'm working on a, on a test proposal now for my next project which I will not tell you mm. what it's about I never do but but um, this is a project that um, you know I might get some some pushback from I don't know I mean I think it's fantastic It's it charms me and if it charms me it's going to charm somebody else you know but it's at some point, you got to just do the sort of like Devil in the White City. I mean, I mean, if luckily I had I had an editor and a, and, a, and a support structure at Crown, where they saw in that book the potential for a really great seller. Mm-hmm. I think, and I don't even know why they would see that. But you know, it came on the heels of um, of a book that had done very well, you know, Isaac Storm, and maybe this was a vote of confidence, you know, I, 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 you know, a hail mary pass on their point. I don't know, but you know, if you think about it rationally, I think if I had tried to pitch that that idea cold with no track record to a publisher, I, I don't think it would ever would would have been published, mm-hmm. you know. But you, so you just have to keep that stuff out of your mind to the extent that you can, and that's why that's why I try to keep things out of my mind that I know I can keep out of my mind, like reviews, <laughs> right. You know, I keep that stuff out of my, and that's why. Also, I never tell anybody what, what ideas I'm working on yeah. because, because, and it's not because I'm afraid somebody's going to steal it. Not at all. It's more like if I told you, you know, what this next thing I'm working on. Um, I'm, a, I'm a terrible. I'm a terrible uh, oral pitcher. You know, I, I I couldn't convey the thing in in the rich detail that I can in a, in a book proposal. So if I told you at a party what I'm working on. Um, you would, and, and it, if you didn't, you know, if you looked at me and, and your face fell flat, like, oh, why, why would you, why would you do really, <laughs> you know, it hurts. Yeah, you know, it hurts your, it hurts your thinking. Yeah, and there's no way, there's no way to to avoid it. I, I marvel at the writer friends that I have who, they'll talk about everything in detail. You know, I, I, they're, they're stronger than I am. They're, t- they're, they're tougher. They're tougher. I'm a wimp. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Sure. And sure. excited for the new book and the one after. Even greater uh, mystery as to what it is. But uh, the new one's called Dead Wake. Yeah, good, good. Thank you. Great. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky, not Evan Ratliff. Evan is on a beach somewhere, which means I get to thank him for that fantastic interview. Uh, Evan, thank you, sir. Thanks also to Eric Larson for taking the time. His new book is called Dead Wake. You should procure it. Our third host is Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. 
Thanks so much to our sponsors, the great folks at Tiny Letter who continue to support us. Go get yourself a Tiny Letter. Uh, if you need something to write about in your Tiny Letter, pick up the new book from Michael Paternetti. It's called Love and Other Ways of Dying. There is no one better than Paternetti. Go get this book. Uh, and finally, check out our new friends at Wealthfront. Wealthfront.com slash longform. They're going to change the way you invest your money. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.